0: Hi folks! My name is Drew Ray and this is Disastercast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. Well, we're up to episode 50! I have to admit I'm kind of surprised the podcast has made it this far, and my thanks to all of you for listening and making it possible. In this episode we're going to take a big picture view of the science of safety. The gap between different academic disciplines sometimes seems quite arbitrary. What's really the dividing line between biology and medicine, or between physics and chemistry? One way to look at it is to focus on the really big questions that are being asked. Chemistry asks, What is stuff made of? Physics asks, Why does the natural world behave like it does? Biology asks, How do living things work, and medicine asks, why do people get sick or stay healthy? Fascination with these big questions is what drives people into research and brings them together as research communities. Safety science also has such a question. In safety science we ask, why do accidents happen? A lot of people come into safety not from the direction of science though, but from engineering. Engineering asks lots of how questions instead of why questions. So their questions are more of the form, how do I make things safe? Engineering is the application of science to real-world problems. So if you ask the how questions hard enough, you eventually start to bump up against missing answers to the why questions as well. So just as asking, how do I make a working transistor, eventually led to why the heck are the materials behaving like that? Asking, how do I make things safe, inevitably leads to, why aren't things safe already? Which is just another way of saying, why do accidents happen? In most fields, the answers to the big questions shift over time. The solid-ball atomic model of Democritus gave way to the plum-pudding model of Thomson then the nucleus model of Rutherford, the orbital model of Bohr, the shell model of Langmuir, then a sequence of progressively detailed quantum mechanical models of the atom. One way of looking at this is that we've got a gradual unfurling of ideas that all roughly fit together, followed every now and then by a big change in fundamental thinking. There's a guy called Kuhn who called this a paradigm shift, And incidentally, that's pretty much the only context in which the word paradigm isn't a warning flag that someone's speaking nonsense. Safety, though, doesn't tend to have paradigm shifts. Instead, people come up with new answers to the question, why do accidents happen? But the old answers don't really go away. My theory is that each new answer creates a new community of safety thinkers. But the old communities just sort of bunker down and stick with what they were doing anyway. The innovators are usually pretty critical of the status quo. After all, how else do you justify putting forward a new idea except by saying that the old ideas are outdated? But it usually isn't the case that the old ideas are actually proven wrong. The different safety communities then spring up, the new community gets a bunch of disciples The old communities get annoyed, and things go on. The communities use similar language, and they tend to adopt ideas from each other, but as ideas cross the boundaries between the safety groups, they become transformed, sometimes subtly, but occasionally to the point where they're actually applied in the direct opposite way to how they were originally intended. Practitioners in safety are usually trained within a single school and so they may be unaware that there are substantial disagreements going on about the theory and practice of safety. By my count, there are around eight major schools of thought in safety. If I've missed any, or if you disagree with my categories, then please write in and let me know and I'll talk about it on the next episode. You can send messages to feedback at disastercast.co.uk. The first school of thought I'll call the Accidents Are Caused by Poor Work Habits Explanation. It's one of the older ideas in safety, but it has modern champions. And there's a fair body of actual recent research work. Originally it was based on the idea of accident-proneness, that there are just some people who have more accidents than others, and something needs to be done about them. But then it built in the ideas of scientific management, also known as Taylorism. And then the ideas of a guy called Skinner, talking about operant conditioning. The basic philosophy is that people do the wrong thing sometimes, which causes accidents. So we need to encourage them not to do it. We can measure and observe the behaviours that we don't like. And we can get quite scientific then about testing what sorts of things increase or decrease the number of good behaviours and bad behaviours. In its most recent incarnation, this school usually gets labelled as behaviour-based safety by the people who support it, and as blame the operator by everyone else. I don't mean to imply by that that it's necessarily bad. It's really quite scientifically rigorous in its research and investigation. The objections to it are more philosophical in nature. Probably the most popular currently active author in this area is a guy called Scott Geller. The second school I'll call the Accidents are Caused by Poor Collective Attitude explanation. It's a bit confusing because this is sometimes also labelled as behaviour-based safety, which upsets the people who consider themselves to be the true disciples of behaviour-based safety. A lot of the people researching in this area consider themselves safety culture or safety climate specialists, but as I'll explain in a minute, actually every school of thought talks about safety culture. They just mean something a bit different each time. So the Poor Collective Attitude School believes that accidents are caused by poor work habits, but that's not really down to the individual. They look at the shared beliefs and attitudes of the workforce and try to improve their behaviour as a group, rather than as an average of lots of individual behaviours. Zohar, the guy who first came up with the name Safety Climate, is one of the thought leaders in this school. The third school I'll call the Accidents are caused by system designs that do not adequately address hazards" school. That's a bit convoluted, but they call themselves safety engineering, or system safety. System safety is another one of those terms, though, that every school talks about with different meaning, so I'll mostly just talk about them as the safety engineers. The idea here is that the root of all accidents is essentially the design of the system. If you get the design right to start with, and it stays right as circumstances change during operation, then it will always be safe. The people I was working with at University of York are mainly in this school. It hasn't changed a lot in approach since the 1970s, except for more sophisticated ways of risk assessment and dealing with complex designs, and better ways of fitting the overall process together. If you see work advocating that areas like patient safety should try to adopt the practices of high-integrity industries, it's probably based in this school. The fourth school is accidents are caused by failed physical components. This is sometimes called process safety by its supporters and barrier safety by its opponents. The idea is that accidents begin by disturbances, usually called initiating events, and get prevented by protective systems. If there aren't enough barriers, or they aren't working well enough, an initiating event gets propagated until an accident occurs. This view of the world is often but unfairly associated with James Reason, due to the way his Swiss cheese model is co-opted to explain it. The fifth school is accidents are caused by inadequate management systems. Again, all the schools talk about management and they talk about systems, but this school takes the emphasis right away from the engineered systems To treat management itself as a system of control and feedback mechanisms. Socio technical is an adjective that comes up a lot in this school, with Nancy Levison's systems theoretic accident model and process stamp as an exemplar of fifth school thinking. The sixth school says that accidents are caused by organisational behaviour. The central notion is that accidents are failures of intelligence. With hindsight, there was a period in which the accident could have been prevented, but the organisation couldn't acquire, recognise and sort through the key information in order to make good decisions. Turner's man-made disasters, or Reason's vulnerable system syndrome, and all the work on high-reliability organisations fit into this school. It's experienced a lot of development in the past few years, making it one of the more academically exciting areas, although it has less to say directly about how safety should be practiced. The best exemplar at the moment is probably Holnagel's Safety 1 and Safety 2. Safety 2 suggests that accidents shouldn't be seen as exceptional circumstances, but as one possible outcome from normal work. The implication is that safety activities should really be entirely focused on understanding and improving normal work, rather than on trying to predict and prevent accidents. The seventh school says that accidents are caused by accepting unacceptable risk. In the other schools, the level of acceptable risk is fairly fixed, and any failure to meet that level needs to be explained. In this school, risk itself is more of a value judgment. There's a mismatch between what society expects and what organizations deliver in terms of safety. In academic terms, this school encourages its disciples to investigate the psychology of risk perception and risk acceptance, and to manage safety by manipulating risk perception and risk acceptance. I guess you could argue that Wilde's risk homeostasis ideas fit into this school, but the most representative examples are Fishov and Slovak. The eighth school is the depressing one that says accidents happen because they're inevitable. Charles Perrault's Normal Accidents is the most well-known example of this school. I myself prefer Amalberti, who also suggests that safety may be unattainable, but for different reasons. He observes that as industries reduce their accident rate, accidents become less acceptable. The lower the accident rate, the more people are shocked when an accident occurs. You just can't win. Eventually, trying to make things safer just raises expectations more than it improves safety. The airline and railway industries are both sliding into this trap. No matter what they do, accidents still happen occasionally, but every accident is seen as an unacceptable failure of the companies involved. The nuclear industry, though, are the masters at creating this trap for themselves. Instead of leading the public to believe that nuclear accidents are, like all industrial accidents, occasional and tragic, but ultimately part of the cost of modern life, they've built this false picture of invulnerability in which accidents are unthinkable. Of course, accidents being unthinkable, people aren't willing to think of them. What I find most interesting about all these different schools is that they come at safety from vastly divergent understanding but they use very similar language. Most people in safety who've only been exposed to one or two schools may not even be aware that other people who appear to be talking about the same thing are in fact picturing something totally different. So take, for example, safety culture. If you ask any safety practitioner what safety culture is, they'll automatically parrot something like, culture is the way things are done around here. If they're being a bit more formal, they'll describe culture as attitudes, values, and beliefs that shape behaviour. So far, so good. Everyone seems to be on the same page. But how does that translate into what people actually think and do? For behaviour based safety, culture exists at the coalface but is managed by management. It shapes work habits so it can be a force for good habits or bad habits. The individualist behaviour-based practitioners think that culture can be adjusted by management, with appropriate triggers and consequences for right and wrong actions. The safety climate practitioners think that culture is a more permanent thing, where the behaviour of each worker is shaped by the people they're working with more than by management. It takes sustained effort to slowly shift the norms and values, Focusing on people's understanding of the importance of safety and the consequences of poor choices. For the safety engineers and process safety people, culture is more something that gets in the way. It's the difference between performing activities according to template standards and rules and performing them competently and diligently. They'd really rather there was no difference between the two, so, culture is something to explain why you can do things the right way and it still doesn't work out. For the safety management systems people, there's no clear line between culture and process, and even the way they measure safety culture tends to build in lots of questions about processes. A good process drives good culture, and good culture can be seen by the presence of good working processes. In the organisational school, culture is not really about individuals at all, even as groups. Culture is a sort of organisational mind. In a good culture, the organisation is fully self aware, whereas in a poor culture, information flows poorly and the organisation can be deceived about its own character. For the acceptable risk school, culture is about attitudes to risk. There are group effects such as normalisation and risk amplification, but overall, culture is really an average of individual risk perceptions and tolerances. So you can see similar term, similar basic definition, but when it comes down to what you actually do about it, you're thinking about it quite differently. If a similar thing goes on with risk assessment, ask any safety person to describe risk, and they'll talk about the probability and consequence of harm. Ask them how they'd perform risk assessment, and suddenly the differences come out. A behaviour-based safety person would observe people carrying out tasks and point out things that they were doing dangerously. A climate person would survey the workforce and point out cultural weaknesses. A system safety person would produce a voluminous quantitative analysis, studying the mechanisms by which hazards could occur and lead to accidents. A process safety person would do something that superficially looks similar but it would be focused on failures of protective systems rather than realizations of hazards. For a safety management systems disciple, risk assessment is itself a way of controlling risk. So, you do things like fill out forms and templates for each new task as a process part of the system. The organisational school is a bit hard to characterise because it hasn't been consistent with its view of risk assessment. In the past, say 30 years ago, they would have seen risk assessment as a mindfulness exercise, an antidote to cultural blindness. More modern work views risk assessment as a social exercise that can normalise attitudes to risk rather than dispelling illusions. This is taken to an extreme in the acceptable risk school, where risk assessment is entirely a social construction of meaning rather than a lens to examine reality. I could go on. What does it mean to implement a safety system? The answer ranges from developing a set of procedures to designing an electronic sensor network, depending on your school of thought. All of these different schools, with their different approaches to safety, exist fairly happily as independent communities. They'll occasionally argue with each other, and they'll certainly look down their noses at each other. No one can actually win the argument over who's right, because these are all answers to the same question, they're all legitimate answers, but they're in a constant battle for disciples. For practitioners caught in the middle, they can spend years embedded in one school without ever even realising that the other schools exist, only to suddenly find their whole way of thinking under attack. The natural reaction when this happens is fight or flight. Either to adopt an entrenched position, stubbornly refusing to admit there's any weaknesses, nothing wrong with your own way of managing safety, or to refuse to engage at all, insisting that there's never any new ideas in safety and nothing anyone can teach me. I've been doing this job for 40 years, and I'm sure these books that I've never read are full of nonsense. The only other alternative is conversion becoming a disciple in the new school, renouncing your old way of thinking, and then enthusiastically joining the attack on your former compatriots. Does any of this ring true for you? Which school of thought do you belong to? Have I misrepresented your school, or left you out altogether? Do let me know. But there's no sense crying over every mistake, you just keep Well, it's time now to return to The Staircase, Studies of Hazards, Falls, and Safer Design. You may recall I introduced this fascinating book by John Templar in the last episode as a microcosm of the entire field of safety. Our question for today, to match the theme of the episode, is why do people fall downstairs? According to Templar, people fall over, because they lose their balance irretrievably. Something interrupts their normal gait, and there's no opportunity to correct their posture. Understanding why people fall over, though, requires understanding how they walk normally, and helping them not fall over can really be better described as helping them succeed at walking on stairs. This, in fact, is the essence of Eric Holnagel's Safety to thinking. At first glance, stopping accidents and supporting successful work may seem to be two different ways of saying the same thing. For both Templer and Holnagel, though, there's a fundamental shift in thinking between the two. Falling over on stairs is just one end of normal human variation on stairs just as getting up the stairs quickly and easily is at the other end of the variation. Creating stairs that are comfortable and easy to walk on is a very different focus to concentrating on people falling over. Safety 1 studies lots of falls on stairs to see what they have in common. Safety 2 studies lots of walking on stairs to see what improves the overall stair-walking experience. Instead of thinking about handrails, non-slips, tape, and hazard signs, or safety one approaches, Templar begins by considering the optimum riser and tread geometry for comfort and safety. Design guidelines for stairs have been around since the first century BC. There are three main considerations. The rise is the height between each step. The going is the amount you need to step forward for each step. And the pitch is the ratio between them. There's one other term which is wash, that's the tilt of each step. Modern steps are usually flat, but Renaissance and Baroque steps often met at a bit of an angle. So, according to a guy called Watton, the foot may in a sort ascend and descend together. Ever since Vitruvius used Pythagorean triplets to specify the pitch of stairs and to set upper and lower limits on the rise and going, Design guidelines have laid out upper and lower boundaries, or they've tried to create some perfect formula for the ratio of rises and goings. Some of these authors were clearly just plucking figures out of the air. Others went round and made personal studies of stairs that they liked and didn't like, and then measured the dimensions. The more rigorous studies got groups of people together and asked them about their personal preference or made them go up and down different types of stairs in laboratory experiments. One of the findings, once the experiments started getting rigorous, was that it's not just gait, how you walk, but energy expenditure that can make stairs hard. Humans are very efficient when they're walking, but that can quickly change when our normal gait is disrupted. Walking slowly or walking very quickly burns up a lot more energy for the same distance, And walking on uneven ground can be quite fatiguing. Stairs are one of the extreme examples of uneven ground, which is why stair walking is such great exercise. One thing I find really interesting is that studying energy and gait produces recommendations for appropriate stair dimensions. Studying accident statistics, people falling over on stairs, does not. Epidemiological studies of stair accidents have failed to produce well-defined patterns in what shape of stairs cause the most accidents. If this seems counterintuitive, remember that the rate of accidents is also determined by how often stairs are used and who uses them. So unless you have different stairs with near-identical usage, it's hard to make fair comparisons. It's very easy, though, to study people walking normally on stairs and see what they like and don't like. That's just about it for this episode of Disastercast. Welcome to Zoe and Dave, the newest patrons supporting Disastercast on Patreon.com. Their contributions have improved your sound quality, just as the efforts of Jesse, Daniel, Hunter, Abraham, Patrick and John have saved the oldest episodes of Disastercast from disappearing off the end of the Virtual Archive shelf. I'd particularly appreciate your comments on this episode at feedback at disastercast.co.uk. Have you changed your own thinking on safety over time? Do you recognise any of the schools of thought as your natural approach to safety? Do you just hate this theoretical stuff and want me to get back to talking about things crashing and blowing up? Don't worry, I will next time. Till then, keep safe.